0: Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So they left Philippi south into Macedonia, and they make their way to Thessalonica. There was a gathering of Jews there and a synagogue, unlike Philippi. And so Paul would feel somewhat at home in a synagogue, especially in a foreign land. Although he likely knew there was going to be problems here, he would go into the synagogue. That was his custom. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. So he would be showing them passages that talks about Jesus, like Isaiah 53, for example, explaining the sacrificial system, our need for cleansing. Uh, the blood of goats did not cleanse us of sin, but the blood of Christ did. And notice that it says, he reasoned with them. So that original word in the Greek is where we get our word dialogue from. He didn't come in with guns ablazing. He taught the Jews from the scriptures, from his own experience, and from his understanding of who Jesus is. And he was allowed to come back. And a big problem for believers, especially newer believers, is our ignorance of, It often leads to doubt because we haven't studied the issue and made up our own mind on what is true based on what we have learned. Rather, we basically trust someone what they say. Well, my pastor taught me this, therefore I believe it. You need to figure it out on your own and have that confidence. And it's not that difficult, but it is somewhat difficult. It's not easy. We've got to get in. We've got to study. we got to become rightly convinced in our own minds that what we believe is true. Otherwise, why are we believing it? Because when someone challenges us who knows their side of the argument well, but we don't, then they make a fool of us, and then we walk away going, oh, this is stupid, I don't believe this stuff. And it's not stupid, and it's not that you don't believe it. We need to understand how to address these things, how to have that dialogue, and not just throw things at people and say, you know, this is the way it is because, uh, well, so-and-so said it is. No, this is what the Scriptures say, and this is why you can trust the Scriptures. And our own testimonies bear a lot of weight in our witnessing, we're a jerk, and everyone knows we're a jerk, and then we try to proclaim the love of God, they're going to be like, whatever. Look at you, man. You're an idiot. You're sitting there talking about this, and this is the way that you are. A lot of Christians you see at church when you talk to people that they work with, they're like, that guy's not a good dude. And that's not right. That's sad. If you're a believer, you should have some kind of evidence, or what the Bible calls fruit, of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those. You should have that coming from you. You should have that evident in you. So we can overcome these arguments by just basically knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and having an idea of what they believe. And what they believe, we don't default to, you're automatically wrong. It's like, let me learn from you. I want to learn what you believe. I want to learn why you believe so I can check my own beliefs, have that dialogue. Because the Jews in the synagogue, they knew the scriptures and they believed them. And Paul now has the opportunity to enlighten them on what they already are familiar with. And hopefully they can understand his perspective. As he reasoned with them, they heard his point of view, and now they pondered what he was saying. So it's in their mind. He's giving them the information. Verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women the Lord opened their hearts to a message and a few Jews were persuaded, but a lot of Gentiles responded. Again, this message is going out and Gentiles are all over it. And the Jews are kind of wishy-washy. Some follow, some don't, and some just get enraged. But the message of hope, forgiveness, new life can really resonate in the hearts and minds of those who are hungry for God. And these Gentiles were hungry. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So this isn't all the Jews. This is the wicked Jews. We have to remember there were righteous Jews as well, but the wicked Jews formed a mob, and they went after a man named Jason, who we don't know a lot about, who lived in the city and was hosting them, allowing them to stay. So they go to Jason's house to look for Paul and his companions because they want to drag him out into the crowd for a beatdown. Paul avoided it, verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Well, they haven't turned the world upside down. You think about that. These guys are so enraged with their jealousy, with their... Ungodliness, that the message of peace and hope that these people were receiving, the joy, all that stuff, they're calling that turned upside down. It's like they were bringing a revival into the cities and they didn't like that. So these Jews were aware of the issues in the other cities that erupted as a result of Paul's teaching. They didn't care about the message. Who cares about the message of peace, hope, love, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, all that? Just the fact that wherever Paul went, people were coming to Christ. And this they hated. Now this problematic preacher was in their city. So what did Paul really do that was wrong? He reasoned with his own people about his religious convictions and convinced a bunch of people to follow Jesus. Did these people go out and trash the community, live in debauchery, rob banks, rape and pillage? No, they found peace and joy and they wanted to share it. Why is believing in Jesus such a problem? Because these people are receiving eternal life and the spiritual darkness that fills this earth battles constantly against the light. And those who are dark hate the light. It's Paul who describes this battle in Ephesians chapter 6. And who better to write about the devil's evil army than the one who battled them to the death? And that's Paul. It was appropriate for him to write because he dealt with this constantly. Verse 7, as they're continuing their rant, And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. King Jesus. This is true. But the context is all out of whack. They try to turn Jesus into a political rival of Caesar, which that would never be tolerated in a Roman city. And they're desperate, and they incite the emotions of the crowd, using half-truths to gain momentum. Sound familiar? Yeah, Things haven't changed too much. Verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Verse 9, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So the people and the authorities exercise caution, and maybe they heard from the magistrates in Philippi. (laughs) Don't beat these guys, whatever you do. So they allow Jason basically to post bond, and he walks. They're like, we're not getting involved in this. So it's a mess in Thessalonica. Verse 10, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Hey, look, Paul, we love you, but you got to get out of Dodge. Go to Berea. It's a nice place you'll be safe there. And where's the first place Paul goes? The synagogue. And Paul appears to me to be a man on a mission with nothing standing in his way of accomplishing that mission. He's just that type of guy. You know, remember in Acts chapter 9, when Paul, or Saul at that time, he comes to faith in Jesus with a little help from the Lord himself. The first thing he does is he goes to the synagogue in Damascus that he was supposed to raid looking for Christians, and they wanted to kill him. So the disciples lower him by night in a basket through an opening in the wall. Then Paul goes to Jerusalem where the disciples freak out because Paul wants to hang out with them. And he begins to preach to everyone, including the Greek Jews, the Hellenists, and they try to kill him too. Finally, the brothers send him back to his home in Tarsus, Look, Paul, go home, get some rest, relax, thinking that might slow him down a bit. it didn't work. Verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So these Jews are open to Paul's teaching and verified by searching the scriptures, something that Paul must have been delighted with, As he's using the scriptures to make his point, and when they do their homework, they find the things in the scripture coincide with Paul's teachings. Like, hey, what do you know? You go back to the Word, you study it, and you find out it's true. Go figure. This is a great lesson for all of us, because we must be interested in the scriptures. Then we must study them and learn them, and finally, use them to test all things. Like Paul would say to the church in Thessalonica in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 21, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. That's good test it all. But really, the Bereans were noble in their character, and that's what led them to seek the truth, because they were seeking what was right. They wanted to know the truth. And flying off the handle because of jealousy is wrong, like the other Jews did. But these Jews, they were like, no, we're going to check this out and see. They had a noble heart. But when you hear the word Berean in Christian circles, it's often, not always, but often associated with believers that they think they know everything, and they seek to destroy the work of God and other ministries by nitpicking at brother or sister's calling or what they've said. And some ministries deserve to be confronted and corrected, no doubt. But many of these ministries, they don't deserve that kind of criticism because God's doing a work through them. He's bringing people to Jesus, and they're getting saved. So we got to be careful not to nitpick people because, well, this person said this, and this person said that, and the music that this group listens to is... We totally reject, you know, and that kind of stuff. We are Bereans. We search the scriptures to see if these things are true. Okay, well, search Matthew chapter 5, talking about blessed are you, when you, and then fill in all these blanks, and you come out with a picture of a humble servant. Look at what Jesus said. You know, he searched the scriptures. What about the scriptures that condemn our own hearts as being desperately wicked? Oh, yeah, we're not going to search those. What about the scriptures that talk about judging others unfairly? What about those? What about searching the scriptures where we're supposed to be praying continually for our brothers and sisters. If you're going to search the scriptures, then do it. That's what the Bereans did. But do what they say. It's like James said, don't be hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. And many people in the Christian realm that have this hashtag Berean, they point the finger at other people unfairly, not realizing that you know God's doing a good work there. And that's not saying you don't criticize someone who's doing something really off the wall. I'm not saying that. But be careful make sure you're obeying Jesus first and you're putting on love. I was at the gym today and God just spoke that to me. I was was having a bad attitude and, you know, I'm just like, "Eh." and God just out of nowhere put on love. And I'm just like, oh man, fine. You know, and I had to put on love because I get so irritated at things so quickly. And God's like, hey, put on love. I'm like, all right, you know, go. Do what God wants us to do, and God wants us to do what the Brians did. He wants us to search the scriptures, absolutely. He wants us to see if these things are true, yep. He wants us to have a noble heart, but don't come down on other people because they raise their hands in worship, you know, or they close their eyes when they're singing or something like that. That's stupid. And these evangelists are bringing people to Christ in droves and you want to attack them. That's evil, man. And God's going to deal with those people for attacking them because he's attacking the work that he is doing. So the word Berean has mixed emotions depending on who you talk to. And I think we need to be like Bereans and be of noble character first. Then we search the scriptures. Verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Here they come. Run, Paul, run! Verse 14. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Let's get Paul in a boat and get him out of here. The Jews had it in for Paul, but Silas and Timothy managed to fly below the radar. Verse 15, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul lands in Athens, and he tells Silas and Timothy, hey, come join me. They drop Paul off, and now Paul is in one of the oldest cities in the world, named after the Greek goddess Athena. Athens has a rich history of philosophy, science, drama, literature, democracy. It's a cool city, I guess. I've never been there. Athenians were sophisticated, probably snobs. So as Paul studies the city, its gods, its culture, he's likely formulating the best approach to share the gospel with the locals. Verse 16, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he's hanging out in the city, nothing to do, walking around, waiting for Silas and Timothy, and he notices how many statues of gods there were in the city. They were everywhere. One historian said that there were more gods in Athens than there were people. And Paul knew very well Israel's history with idolatry, which led them to the exile. He knew what happens when you trust in a false god. And he would later write to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 10.20. says, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord. And the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Paul knows the spiritual reality behind worshiping anything that's not God. There's a demon behind everything that we worship, and it's waiting to deceive and destroy. And he's seen all these gods in this city, and they had gods for everything. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons. And in the marketplace, every day with those who happen to be there. So, back to the synagogue. There's always these devout people hanging out. It's cool. They're looking for God. Verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So now Paul gets a shot at the philosophers, and they invite him in. Verse 19, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Look online at the pictures of the Areopagus. It will probably look familiar to some who've looked up ancient ruins online. You'll notice it's a big rectangular skeletal structure with a lot of large vertical columns supporting what remains of the roofline. So you'll kind of see that. That's where he was. He was in that building. And now he's got an audience. And they're continuing to say in verse 20, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. They're interested in listening to Paul because he's been teaching these things and words getting out, and now they're like, what's this guy saying? All right, come on over here. Let's talk about these things. Verse 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's all they did, sit around and talk about new things. I think that makes people feel smart, but that's what they were doing. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. So he begins his presentation of the gospel with trying to connect with them on a religious level. Verse 23, for as I passed and I observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this is what I proclaim to you. So their unknown God is a springboard into his message of the one true God. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord in heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's saying God's not dependent on mankind. Rather, he is the creator who sustained us. That's kind of foreign thinking to the gods that they were used to worshiping. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So he goes right into the biblical story of creation, where God created Adam and Eve, and from them all mankind ultimately multiplied throughout the earth in various times and places as God had determined. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. Again, this is foreign thinking, because the Greek and Roman gods were far off, temperamental, and perverted. He didn't want to mess with them. But Paul's saying, God's right here. He's right in our midst. Verse 28, 4, quote, In him we live and move and have our being, unquote, even as some of your own poets have said, quote, for we are indeed his offspring, unquote. So now... Paul gets an opportunity to dovetail his preaching to one of their poets, Epimenides from Crete, about 600 BC. He's quoting from this guy. Now he's connected with them using their own poet. He's not saying that that poet was inspired by God. He's just simply using what he said, which was consistent with biblical teaching, to make his point. He's like, look, you guys believe this too. Your own poet says it. This is who I'm talking about. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Yeah, since we're His offspring, we shouldn't think of Him as one of these statues that you guys created. He's more than that. He's not just a fancy rock carved out of a side of a mountain or something. He's God. Verse thirty: The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Same message today. Verse thirty-one: Because He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that's Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is going to be the one who does the judging. He's the righteous judge. You read Isaiah chapter 63 about how he comes back and executes his wrath in his judgment, that kind of stuff. But that's Jesus. God has prepared a day when the man whom he appointed, Jesus, will judge this world, and he verified that, this is the man, confirmed that this man is the one by raising him from the dead. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, "Eh, we'll hear you again on this. They stumbled at the resurrection like so many people do today. I just can't believe that. People don't rise from the dead. Yes, they do. In heaven, there'll be several people. You know, Lazarus, who Jesus rose from the dead, the young boy that Elisha raised from the dead, Tabitha, that Peter raised from the dead, even though it was God actually doing the raising. He just used his servants in the process. So we're going to meet these people who were raised from the dead, and they ultimately died again. But so many people stumble at the resurrection of Jesus, even though the best evidence is to know him personally. Dead people don't change a person's life. They don't snap an addiction. They don't restore marriage. They don't guide people through hard times. They do not do any of that stuff that Jesus does. He continues to do these things because he rose from the dead. He's there. Verse 33, so Paul went out from his midst. And I can't help but think that Paul probably felt defeated as he walked out. You know, it's like, well, you know, look, I talked about their own poet, connected their religion with the unknown God. You know, I did these things and still feel like it went anywhere. Verse 34, but some men joined him and believed among them were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. So a few got on board, and Paul would actually learn from this experience that trying to reason with people using what was familiar to them, you know, again, like the unknown God and the Greek poet, didn't really work for him. And now as he moves on, he's going to change up things, and he's going to now preach Christ crucified, and if they mock, let them mock. If they believe, then they believe. So his next stop, the ancient city of Corinth. Thank you.